1: So we got a great show yeah, um, yeah and the guy we've got coming in the studio here Matt uh, which i think is getting hooked up right now um very interesting uh-huh yeah, yeah I'm, I'm excited to talk to him and and to uh to listen a little bit because it uh part of what attracted me to it is he's helping people subsidize farm income and, mm-hmm. and helping them support that farm lifestyle and Matt are you are you online with us here are you on the phone
2: i am here how are you i'm good
1: Hi. yeah good. yeah so ladies and gentlemen we've got matt breckwald from tell me if i'm pronouncing this right cuna idaho
2: you got it right cuna
1: cuna okay. cuna idaho um matt is um I'm, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say you're a farmer by trade
2: I am well. I it's been a long journey, but uh, I'm finally here. So yeah, we raise uh, livestock out here and direct market beef and pigs, and and then we raise goats too, kind of by accident. We you raise down goats?
3: The... Oh. You just said the magic by word, accident. Matt. <laughs> by accident?
2: <laughs> that's yeah, I, that's uh, probably a nice story.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it is. But yeah, we we enjoy it, and uh, we've got a small farm here about 20 miles outside of Boise. And I get to spend all my time here talking about agriculture or actually going out and working on my own place.
1: The family man?
2: Yeah, wife and one daughter. And uh, we got that stage of life going right now where she is very busy with all sorts of activities, the mm-hmm. FFA, softball, uh, student government, all this type of stuff. And so yeah, my uh, my big dreams, my farm and my business, those are all kind of on hold as we get through these next four years of uh, helping her live that part of her life.
1: Very good. Yeah, so your, your family, your wife and daughter, they're in the farm life with you, and it sounds like she's active in FFA, um, showing animals.
2: Uh, actually, she showed animals, man, for six or seven years in 4-H and just went into FFA this year. And she's getting involved in kind of the other side of it and has decided not to show this year, but uh, really interested in conduct of meetings, parliamentary procedure. As a matter of fact, uh, her conduct of meetings team uh, won state here in Idaho, so they're going to go to the national convention this fall, which is really exciting. Oh, wow.
3: Yeah, well, congratulations to her. Where,
1: where is the national okay. convention being held now? Is it still in Louisville?
2: No, Indianapolis.
1: Indianapolis. Uh, they moved. They, it went back and forth just a little bit, did it not?
2: It did. And then I forget. They've got, they've got a run set up. So there's so many years they know for sure they're going to be there in, in Indy.
1: So we're actually located here in Kansas City. And, and you may or may not know this. The National FFA uh, Convention was here in Kansas City for ever. Mm-hmm. I mean, for many, many years. And then uh, lost that contract. And that was, uh, that was a mistake. You yeah. know, that, was, that was disappointing to see yeah. Kansas City let that slip. Uh, a lot of it had to do with convention centers and hotel space and just, you know, it, uh, at one time I had read that the National FFA Convention was the second largest indoor convention, um, second only behind the Democratic National Convention. Wow. Yeah. It's a very, very large organization, and and was highly supported for many, many years. You see it. You see yeah. the FFA declining a little bit in in schools, and let's say in Idaho uh, up there, is it is it struggling a little bit to be as relevant as it once was, Matt? Uh,
2: I wouldn't I wouldn't say that. As a matter of fact, I see chapters growing. Uh, however, as we see our communities changing, we're seeing. Uh, a different dynamic we're seeing a different student taking an interest in ffa so for example i'm on our advisory board at cuna high school for our local ffa chapter and we're seeing a lot more students who live in subdivisions becoming part of the ffa and so that creates challenges as a matter of fact uh right now uh, one of those students is a a young lady who we coached in softball for several years uh, when my daughter was younger uh, we're letting her raise a lamb on our on our farm because she lives in a subdivision and she wants to show an animal this year at the fair. Uh, but there's there's challenges like that. So uh, I think it's changing a little bit. But all you know the the mission and the focus of the FFA has changed uh, over the last you know 30 years as well uh, in terms of recognizing that uh, it's not you know the old saying it's not just thousand plows but uh, my goodness, all the career opportunities in agriculture and, and even outside of agriculture with what the FFA does for these students and getting them ready for public speaking mm-hmm. and record keeping and, and all the skills they come out of high school with is just phenomenal. It's second to none. And, uh, and so we're seeing a lot of interest from people who aren't necessarily off of farms in the FFA because where else are you going to find that in in public education?
1: You have no idea how much it warms my heart to hear a guy say that because it's um, we we hear from time to time that some of the chapters may be struggling just a little bit and you know things change. I mean, obviously the uh, we'll continue to evolve. Here in America, but at the same token, there's so many of those organizations: 4-H, the FFA, uh, Boy Scouts. Mm -hmm. You know, there's just different organizations that teach young men and young women some some skill sets and some leadership tools. That um, Mm -hmm. it's just really, really hard uh, to replace those. You know, once they're gone. So the fact that it's on the incline, that there's demand for it coming out of the residential communities. Um, that's, that's just music to my ears. And I grew up in FFA. It's funny. I'm a, I'm an auctioneer by trade. Most people that listen Mm -hmm. to the show know that. And, um, I've had people tell me or ask me before said, how can you get up in front of other people and speak? Or, you know, how, how do you lose your kind of your inhibitions, you know, or, or how, how can you just bring yourself to do that? Well, it all started at a young age in Clubs and organizations like the 4-H and like the FFA, most people don't know. And you mentioned public speaking; um, that is a very large part of the learning of the teachings and the in the FFA. Parliament, uh, parliamentarian procedure, um, leadership protocols. You know, it's uh, it's it's amazing, and I'm glad to hear that that's that it's alive and well in Idaho. I hope that continues to replicate across the, the rest of the country and. And uh, the school system stay behind that because it's a great organization.
2: Mm -hmm. Oh, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly.
1: So let's talk a little bit um, about starting kind of niche businesses and and just unique businesses. Because one of the things that I'd like to visit with you a little bit uh, about is... um, the effects, and, and a lot of people contribute this to COVID, but the effects and and the, kind of that stimulation of urbanites or urban America moving into non-urban America, there seems like in the last two or three years, there's been a really strong surge or a push for people that want that farm lifestyle, um, mm-hmm. and that's a big part of what you do, uh, is, is maybe help right. those people kind of find those dreams and talk to them uh, about, um, you know, as we... Kind of go through this show, we'll talk about off farm income or how they can help support that lifestyle once they get out there and and get set up but uh yeah. let's let's talk about this just a little bit if you want to uh, maybe enlighten us about yeah. starting a niche business and what that means
2: yeah and i'll I'll kind of give you the route to that or at least what my you know what I theorize and what I see just looking online and I think with with what you guys do in in real estate. Uh, you can confirm this for me or maybe tell me I'm wrong. I don't know. But here's what I see. Uh, there's a lot of people that, and this trend's been going on for a while, that want to move out of the cities and they want to move out to rural areas. And But people have different reasons for that. Some people want to do it uh, because they're horse people. They want to have a couple horses. They want to have a beautiful place. Some people want elbow room. Some people are isolationists. But, and and then another group of those people are folks Who have this dream about this farming lifestyle or this ranching lifestyle or whatever that may be. And and they've always dreamed about it and they want to do that. They would love to do that. Now, I'm in that group. Mm -hmm. Uh, My wife and I, uh, I've had a goal of having my own farm since I was about 18 years old. Uh, My wife and I got married. She grew up on a cattle farm, cattle ranch uh, down in Buell, Idaho. And we agreed we wanted to have our own cattle at some point. We wanted to have our own place, but we weren't going to inherit that. And so, you know, for 20 years, we worked at it and we finally bought a place in 2011. So this actually this August will be 10 years that we've been on our own place. And uh, so we bought a small farm and we got started developing it and building it into something and trying to get it to the point where it can make money. But uh, that that's we're part of that group. We actually want to farm productively. We want to actually make a profit. And, uh, but this farm that we're on is never going to make enough money to support our entire household. You Mm -hmm. know, with the things that we want to do, uh, we want to save for retirement. Uh, we want to put our daughter through college and all that type of stuff. We need to pay the bills. We need to buy groceries every now and then go on a trip. So, this farm will never do that. And, and people who actually want to go out and farm and they want to have that as their lifestyle and their business, I believe that ultimately they would like to reach a point where all they do is farm. Uh, that's kind of the dream. That's the lifestyle. All I do is farm. But that's not a financial reality for almost anybody uh, in this country. Uh, and even large farmers. Uh, yeah, I was—I was, of was
1: going to say, even farmers yeah. are getting to the <laughs> point where they can't just do that. They've got to get out and subsidize right. their habit. Mm-hmm.
2: That's right. And so, for those folks who really want to have a farm business, they're not just looking for something that's picturesque. They're not just looking for, uh, you know, a place to throw a couple of horses. And by the way, nothing against any of these other groups. I'm just talking about my particular group. For those folks, they run into a really big paradox. And that is if they're currently living and working in the city, and they've got this dream of this farming lifestyle, and they want this productive agricultural land, they want to put it into production and, and make something with it. They, this paradox is they're making good money in the city. But because they're so close to the city and these good jobs, there's lots of people in those other categories I just described that are competing with them for that open land.
4: Mm-hmm. And
2: that drives the price up. And the price is being driven up not by the production capability on that land, but the dri- the price is being driven up by all sorts of other extraneous factors. People who want that horse property, people who want that elbow room, people who want that vista whatever that may be, and therefore uh, the you're never going to you're never going to recapture that investment and in that land or make that place pay for its, make it pay for its own land payment or whatever that may be through agricultural production, because um, you're you're paying for it way more than it can produce.
1: Right.
2: Now the flip side of that is okay. So if that's the case, then let's go out far enough where land prices actually do reflect the production capability of the land. Well, if you do that, then all of a sudden you lose those jobs, those good paying mm-hmm. jobs that will help you make that mortgage payment or whatever you need to do, those disappear. And, and, and so there's the paradox. So it's kind of like, you're darned if you do, darned if you don't, how do you make this work? And my answer to that problem is entrepreneurship. My answer to that problem is starting a small business uh, in that area you're going to that will serve farmers or serve the people in the communities that you're close to. And as an entrepreneur and as a business owner, you can make a good wage. You can make good money that will help you to support your farm where some of the hourly wage jobs that may be out there and available to you uh, would not do that. And, and I also see side benefits to that too. And I'm a livestock guy. I'm not a row crop guy. Uh, not that I don't love row crop farmers or that industry. It's fascinating to me. But me personally, I'm a livestock person. And so I always use this example. But if you if you're working in town and you've got a rigid 40-hour-a-week schedule, uh, your boss is going to say, hey, work is first. This is our number one priority, and you need to be here. We've scheduled out shifts. We've only got so much coverage, and we need you here right now, and your farm has to come second. Mm -hmm. But if your goal is truly to farm, and your goal is truly to have a profitable, sustainable farm that you can eventually stay on full-time, Well, you, especially at the beginning of this, you need to have as few mistakes as possible uh, because you need to maximize the efficiency of that farm. So let's say you got, you got a, you know, five first calf heifers and, and they're all calving sometime within the next two weeks and you're at your 40 hour a week job. And one of them goes into labor and she's out there struggling. It's been a half an hour and she's not making any progress getting that calf out. And you tell your boss, I got to go home and pull this calf. And your boss says, uh, no, you've got to be here selling X, Y, and Z, or doing whatever it is you do. There's a real conflict. But if you work for yourself, and I did this, I started a business, and this allowed me to do this. If you work for yourself, um, and you're providing service to somebody, especially other farmers, you can call up that client, that customer. And you can go, I'm sorry, I got a, I got a heifer, she's capping, she's having problems. And I'll work till midnight tonight at your place, but I'm going to have to be late because I got to deal with this right now. And they understand that. And maybe you save that calf. Maybe you save that heifer. And maybe that's, you know, maybe that's a replacement heifer for you going forward. Maybe that helps you build your herd. And then maybe that makes you uh, a successful farmer going forward. And so there's some side benefits to entrepreneurship other than just providing good income out away from where there's really, really readily available jobs that pay well. Uh, that I think can really help people be successful if they're seeking this lifestyle.
1: That is exactly, um, man, you just, you just stated case in point. Mm -hmm. What that, uh, that paradox, as you called it is, is happening for Mm -hmm. many Americans Mm -hmm. that have that farm dream. Let's uh, yeah. And we, we want to talk a little bit about what entrepreneurship can look like in rural America when you move farther out and, you know, in most farming communities, farms that will actually pay for themselves just strictly from a production standpoint, it's been many, many years uh, since most mm-hmm. agricultural farms have sold at, at that kind of a rate um, because it's been stimulated by, as you put it, outside influence that's mm-hmm. coming in and it's, right. uh, it's off uh, non farms, uh, non farmers uh, non ranchers that are moving, uh, into areas and inflating the values of the property. So
4: right. Yeah.
1: What I'd like to yeah, do 100%. is, uh, we'll, if you don't mind, Matt is we're going to, we'll slip off here and hear from our sponsors real quick. When we come back, I want to talk to you and, and Trina about what some of the entrepreneurialship business can look like out there in rural America. We'll be back in just a few minutes with, uh, Matt. We'll talk about that
4: ever dream of owning a country estate historic home or lakefront property log on to unitedcountry.com would you like to retire to a home built on breathtaking acreage in the mountains unitedcountry.com ever dream of your own private hunting preserve unitedcountry.com over 30,000 farm recreational and lifestyle properties are just a click away helping people find their american dream for over 90 years we will help you find yours log on now to unitedcountry.com and find your freedom
5: Buying and selling minerals is a breeze when you have the right energy professionals on your team. Mineralmarketing.com is a leading resource for America's mineral owners. Whether you're wanting to lease or sell your mineral rights, mineral marketing has you covered. Mineralmarketing.com, the oil and gas marketplace.
1: So while we were on break we were talking about entrepreneurship and and more so that that American dream and it's yeah. always it's different for different people but let's say that your American dream is is farm ownership yeah. is is having your wife and your daughter and going out to non-urban America rural America and you know your your match you've been 10 years on the farm Matt, what's that look like for somebody that's exploring entrepreneurship and needing to kind of subsidize that lifestyle? Just kind of what's a what's a stereotypical job that you see in your part of the country up there that would help support that?
2: Well, in terms of in terms of businesses, uh, you know, there's 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 quite a few that you see repeated over and over and over again. And, And it depends on your proximity to an urban center but if you're close to an urban center uh, a lot of times people who are starting a farming operation they're buying equipment for their farming operation certainly they're buying a tractor Uh, they're probably buying a scraper maybe a box scraper they've got a bucket they might have a brush hog things like that so you see a lot of businesses out there as you comb through craigslist and places like that throughout the united states where people are brush hogging people's property Uh, they're hauling off trees maybe they're cutting up and and cleaning up dead and down trees Uh, they're cutting firewood and things like that so there's when you ask for something that is very common uh, i think businesses like that uh, are Uh, but of course you're going to have to be close to an urban center where you've got folks who are not as self-reliant as you are as a farmer Mm -hmm. and are looking to pay somebody for those services now if you're further away from an urban center and you're truly truly in a very very prototypically agricultural area then you got to start really assessing what's available or what is needed, uh, what services could be provided out in those areas to farmers and to people in agriculture, and then come up with a way to provide that service and to fill that gap. Sometimes that requires you to go out and buy a piece of equipment. Sometimes it just requires you to hang your shingle out and say, I can do this for you.
1: You know, you had mentioned – Early on, prior to uh, when we began, we we talked a little bit about some consolidation that's going on mm-hmm. uh, amongst farm mm-hmm. service providers, and how does this? Um, and I, I'm I'm trying to think of ways where off the farm income or uh, maybe service provisions that uh, does it require you to already be a service provider in the farm community to apply to, to that rationale, that that thought out there of consolidating your operations? Or is this something that somebody that's new to that market could move in and, you know, begin like a, a service provider, service provision company, you know, some kind of a service agency to the area farmers and ranchers?
2: Well, I can tell you with 100% surety that somebody new to the community can move in if they're providing the service that is needed and is useful and they're doing a good job. That's how I started. My very first business uh, was gopher extermination. We've got a large problem out here in the West with pocket gophers, particularly in sprinkler irrigated alfalfa fields. And I bought a piece of equipment that would allow me to go out to farmers locations to their properties and then exterminate these pocket gophers for them at a very effective rate. And that business went very well. As a matter of fact, that business is still thriving and growing today. I sold it to one of my employees four years ago,
3: wow. uh,
2: when I went full time into agricultural broadcasting. But that that business is thriving and and still growing and doing wonderful things. And both uh, he and I, uh, with me being the original founder of that company, uh, we were brand new into this community and and you know getting to know the farmers in this community by providing service. So that is that's a hundred percent possible, absolutely.
1: There's, and a, there's a difference between gophers and prairie dogs. Is that right?
2: There is, but they prairie dogs behave. We've got ground squirrels <laughs> out here in the <laughs> west as well, and they behave very, very similar to prairie dogs, except for the fact that they're not quite as big and their holes aren't quite as big. I was but like, they gophers those are what open. we
3: have outside here, isn't mm. it?
2: No, those That's are groundhogs. Okay. Yeah.
3: What's the difference between a woodchuck and a groundhog? Anything? I don't know. You don't know? Well, (laughs) I thought gophers and those things were the same thing. Like... On Caddyshack, those are what that looks like out there. We're gonna turn you into a <laughs> zoologist, Matt.
1: So Sorry. Explain to us gophers the, the differences <laughs> between a gopher and a and a prairie Let's dog get into just Entomology them. real and, fast. And here's why I'm asking you that question. I'm I'm familiar with prairie dog towns, and those things are a nuisance. Yes. When you get out into yes. western Kansas, into Colorado, Nebraska. And Nebraska. Yeah. I mean, go prairie dog towns will tear up some property.
2: That's right. Yeah, and gophers will do the same. Uh, the major difference between gophers and prairie dogs or like the ground squirrels we have out here is that the prairie dogs and the ground squirrels, while they're active, they're not in what's called uh, – oh, I'm forgetting my terminology since I've been out of the business for four years. It's not hiber- It's not hibernation. It's uh, some other word where they hibernate, they come back out of sleep, and they hibernate again. Anyway, when they're not doing that, uh, you know, they leave their holes open. They've got these big open holes out there. Gophers, they build little mounds of dirt and they plug their holes. So once they're done coming up to the surface for some reason, they shove a bunch of dirt in that hole and they plug it all up. So you'll just see a big pile of dirt. Uh, You'll never see an open hole with a gopher unless they're actively digging.
3: Hmm. Interesting. The more you know.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's right. because you talked about entrepreneurship. It, it may be it's not just, yeah, I'm going to move out there and I'm going to become a mechanic or I'm yeah. going to move out there and I'm going to have heating and air business.
3: There's a you, gopher problem and I need to go out there and be a gopher exterminator. Exactly.
1: You find yeah. the problem and, and then you provide the service, mm-hmm. right?
2: The The principles of entrepreneurship do not change just because you're going out to a rural or a farming or agricultural community, the principles of entrepreneurship stay the same. Mm-hmm. Which means that you have to assess the community. You've got to figure out what is needed in the community. Like, is there a void? If is there a need that people have that you could fill, or is there something you could provide that you could do better than everybody else that is out there? Those principles do not change. So let's say that let's say that you want to move to uh, Western South Dakota and you're like, I'm going to move to Western South Dakota, I'm going to be a mechanic. Mm-hmm. Well, you better look at the community you're moving to first, because if they've got 14 mechanics, and they're all working 25 hours a week, because there's so much competition, that's not really a good business to start. Yeah. So the principles of entrepreneurship stay the same. But the types of businesses that we're going to start, that's where we get creative. That's where we figure out where the need is. And we just don't see those types of businesses anywhere else, but in the agricultural communities.
1: Yeah, well, uh, and I assume the other the other part of that is, besides the fourteen mechanics, is is it a densely or sparsely populated area? You know, and what is what's the opportunity out there? So, right, if you, uh, I mean, if you have, um, let's say, an aging demographic, um, and there's there's very few. I moved up here from Western Oklahoma from a town that had less than three hundred and fifty people in it when I moved from it. Um, And then you would look at the population, not just in the town, but surrounding towns and countywide and start doing an assessment of, you know, how what's what's the typical, you know, turnover um, or opportunity for business in this kind of a population for this type of a field, you know, that I'm going to go into. And yeah, I, I think that makes perfect sense. And that can be difficult because when people are fleeing urban America into non-urban America, the the one there's there's two things that seem to be constant out there is one much lower population, and in some cases mm-hmm. there is. Um, um, there's less uh, less income levels, you know, there's there's
3: less technology and ways to get your name out there ways to market yourself. It's more, you know, it's a whole different atmosphere as well that way.
1: So talk to us about that, Matt, because Trina brings up a great point when you uh, I I would assume part of the uh, entrepreneurship when you're moving into rural America would be the ability to have technology based businesses, Mm -hmm. because that's been, you know, kind of an emerging thing in, in industry is the ability to work from home or work remotely. But what happens when you don't have, you know, uh, what do they call the the fiber optic, you know,
2: cable or. or, If uh, you're having to run
3: off your your 5G instead of, you know, whatever.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly. Well, I you know, I think that's part of your assessment. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'll give you an example. I'll use myself again. Now, I don't have, I have. I guess I've got broadband internet on my farm, but it's, it's like shot over the air. We don't have any wires or cords coming to my house. Yeah. So there's got something on my roof that points at some sort of a tower and I get internet that way and it allows me to do what I do, which is tech related. Uh, but you might be in an area that does not have that. That's part of the assessment. If I today, if let me change this up. If my wife today would go, okay, I'm ready. Cause she works in, she works in Boise. She's a school teacher loves her job if she said i'm ready let's go out and get away and get out where we can you know we can sell this place here and we can triple or quadruple uh, the amount of of land that we can run cattle on or whatever maybe if she said that the one limiting factor for me would be can will can i have the technology that i need to continue to conduct my yeah. business from that place that would be a, that would be a limiting factor for me so if your entrepreneurial idea, if your entrepreneurial venture is tech-related, uh, you're going to be spending all your time on the computer or you need that high-speed internet, then, yeah, I think that will be a limiting factor in some parts of, of rural America right now uh, until until either all those satellites that keep flying over us work or whatever. I don't know. But uh, that will be a limiting factor. And so, again, that's part of, that's part of where the – you know, the, the concepts or the principles of entrepreneurship do not change. You have to assess a, what you can do, what's a real opportunity for you if you've picked that area. Now I will tell you that I encourage people to, if they truly, if farming is their number one priority, I encourage them to pick the area based on what's going to give them the most realistic chance of farming, not on necessarily what's the most beautiful uh, what's the best schools, what's closest to family. And I know that may sound harsh in, in this, you know, today's culture in our society in the United States, but I'm saying if your number one priority is farming, then you've got to move to the spot that's going to give you the best chance that's of yield.
3: Yeah. farming. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And that may include an area, cause if you're going to need to start a business to support this and may include, is this an area where I can start a business that will help me to support what I'm seeking? Uh, so I, I, you've got to assess all of that when, it, and factor it all in when you're making this choice. Right.
1: You know something I've seen with I think people are becoming more progressive, and um, I've noticed this huge push over. Uh, it's been quite a few years now where people are becoming more. The average person's becoming more and more suspect of what they ingest. They're more and more conscious about what they ingest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're looking for all natural, uh, they're looking for mm-hmm. um, animals that are and being cage raised, free. yeah, yeah. cage-free, mm-hmm. they're antibiotic or or steroid-free mm-hmm. whenever mm-hmm. they're raising. All of that. Uh, mm-hmm. Exactly. So I th- I see a lot more, and this is not just here in, in the market we're in, but I get a chance to travel with the company and in different offices, different parts of the U.S., that seems to be kind of thriving business off of the farm where they've diversified and they're raising cage-free chickens and the eggs. And they're using marketing strategies like Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace to get the word out. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're charging a premium. They're, they're you know, That's they're right. charging above market for this because you're, you're getting more. People are willing to pay more for that. And to me, that looks like if you're in the farming industry and now all of a sudden you're diversifying off of just, you know, kind of following the rest of the pack on on just pure growth numbers, you know, just you're calling out part of the herd and saying, well, these over here haven't had, you know, any steroids. They haven't had any antibiotics. They're, mm-hmm. what do they call certified beef, you yes, know, certain yes. types of certified beef, certain... Um, no pesticides you know it's all organic on the crops at uh, the vegetables and then they charge a premium for those and it's bringing revenue back into the farm what are your thoughts about that matt
2: well i think it's a great idea i do it uh we sell grass-fed grass-finished beef off of my farm Uh, we're also close to a municipal center uh, boise and eagle and meridian here in idaho and so there's a lot of people that are making good money and they've got enough disposable income that they're willing to pay that premium for, for so that that, that mm-hmm. product, yeah. And and I've got a lot of thoughts on this. My first thought is this: I you know I love that model. Uh, it's what I use, and it it really helps me to uh, look at my farm and and have it be profitable because I've got such good profit margin in a finished steer or in a finished heifer. But with that said, I do believe that uh, that that's a luxury. Uh, so if there's a downturn in the economy, I would anticipate not that, not that you wouldn't be able to sell direct marketed beef the way that I do, but I would anticipate that the, the demand would shrink, uh, as, as our, if we had a downturn in the economy. So sure. Cause the first, the, gonna, the first thing they're going
1: to, the first thing they're going to cut if they have to are luxury items.
2: Yeah. Right. Right. And so I, to, base, to base your long-term strategy on the, on the fact that you're always going to get those prices, and maybe I'm wrong. I'm not an ag economist, but my gut just tells me uh, that that is kind of building your house on sand a little bit. Uh, yeah. it, that's just what my gut tells me. But I, I, I love it while I can do it. I absolutely love it while I can do it. The other part of that is if you get out far enough, right? If you're in that, you're in that town that you came from, that's agriculturally based 350 people in Oklahoma, those, you know, I I would imagine because I grew up in an agricultural community and I got zero problem enjoying a delicious steak that has come right out Mm
5: -hmm. of
2: a feedlot. I got no problem with that. And if I went back to the town I grew up in, nobody there does either. And so if you're, if that's the town you're close to, I think you're going to have a much more difficult time direct marketing and selling these products at a premium because folks there are so grounded in traditional agriculture. They're going to be like, why would I pay you that much for beef when I can go right down here and I can buy one for, direct from the butcher uh, for, you know, a third or a fourth of that cost? Yeah. Um, and when you say, well, because this has no hormones and it has, you know, it hasn't, you know, are we fed with organic hay or, you know, whatever it may be, they might be. That just doesn't matter to me. And, mm-hmm. and so they're going to buy the cheaper, the cheaper product. So yeah, I think they're, it con, a lot.
1: They're conditioned differently yeah. and they think differently.
2: Right. And, and they're just, you know, they've been around production agriculture and traditional agriculture their whole lives. And a lot of the stuff that's being, that's being put out there and, and I don't, I'm not a scientist. I can't tell you what's right or what's wrong, but what I can say is it's just not having the impact on those folks. And so if that's where you choose to live you may not have that demand for those premium products as you do if you're close to a municipal center.
1: You know, I hadn't thought as much about the traditional um, farm kind of mentality out there until you just brought that up. I I had always contributed more of that to the, the financial impact um, and the opportunity of being in larger, uh, more heavily populated areas Um where there's business, there's there's industry going on. There's more disposable income in those markets, mm-hmm. and then they have the they have the ability instead of buying you know eight dollar per pound meat, they buy eleven and thirteen dollar per pound meat or you know, whatever. It's all proportionate, but right. um, but they pay a premium for something else because they have the means to do that, um, but. Yeah, it's 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 funny when you mention that. People do have a tendency just to immediately write that off and say, "Nah, you know, that's not important to me. I'm I'm going with the bargain because I trust in it because my parents did, my grandparents did, my great-grandparents did, and they're just conditioned that way." Yeah,
3: that's what they grew up with. That's what they grew up around, That's what they grew up with. They called John down on the, you know, on the next farm over and just took half his cow that year or whatever, and that was fine for the whole time they grew up and the whole time their parents and grandparents did. So why change it? So, yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, and you know, I'm really hesitant to call it condition. Um, just because, you know, I think folks that, that grew up out there just like I did, uh, you know, they've, they've watched the grandparents, they've watched the parents, everybody eat the beef that's yeah. coming out of the feedlot and it's been for fine. years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's been fine. They've seen people live nice, healthy lives and, and it's been just fine. And I think they're making a very rational decision. I think they're very making a very conscious and rational decision, which is if this, if this steer over here is going to cost me three times as much as this one over here, but do I really value the way this steer that's three times as much was raised so much that I'm willing to forego the opportunity that I would have to spend that money on something else if I bought the lesser expensive steer. And if you've grown up and gone, I really don't think this is that big a deal. A lot of people are talking about GMOs or antibiotics or hormones or whatever, but you know what? I've been just fine. Mom and dad were just fine. Grandparents were just fine. I'm going to spend that money somewhere else. And I I think it's a really rational and conscious decision.
1: Yeah. Fair. Yeah, that's fair. That's, that's a fair statement. And it um, has a lot to do with the environment with, and I don't mean the environment like the planet. I mean the environment that you were sure. raised in and that you operate in.
2: Right. Yeah. Yep, I completely agree.
1: Escaping the city for the farm and, and more importantly, the benefits of rural values. That's, uh, that's something that also resonated with me and, uh, in your bio and things that you talk about is that, that rural value, that rural farm family value, is just something that, um, you know, just to put it bluntly, Put a staple in it. It's something we need more of in this day and age.
2: Well, I agree. I think self-reliance for sure, uh, work ethic for sure. Uh, I agree with all of that. And of course, there's a little bit of romanticism built into that as well. Uh, you know, not you know, not everybody out in rural communities is this prototypical neighbor that you might envision. But uh, there are a lot of great people out in rural communities, and. And one of the things I love about those rural values is that that folks in rural communities they value things like uh, chatting with with neighbors down at the coffee shop. They value things like uh, the outdoors, not a big fancy house with tons of square feet that you don't need or something like that. They value things like I can be fine living in a community where our you know the social interactions in this community revolve around two things. Plant, well, not two things. Agriculture and high school sports. You know, we go to the football games on Friday nights. We go to the basketball games over the winter. We watch the baseball and the softball games in the spring, and and we chat about how you know, how planting is going. We chat about how harvest is going. And uh, if if you enjoy that lifestyle, I believe that uh, there are so many communities for you to live in in the United States that are very very affordable, and you're going to be very very happy. And it just it takes. You hear about all these stresses that, that people in the cities are, are dealing with because the cost of living is skyrocketing mm-hmm. and the traffic and everybody's on this hamster wheel just trying to make enough money to get by and buy a car and deal with, with housing costs and property taxes. And you could go out to Blackwell, Texas, just to name one town in all of the United States, and you could go, man, they got a, they got a fun football team, a great school, people like farming out here and barbecue, and I'm in heaven. And you pay cash for your house and you're done. You don't have any of those stresses. Yeah.
3: Yeah. It's funny you say that. My brother um, actually lives in L.A. County right now in California, and they're they're uh-huh. packing up next year and moving to Katy, Texas. I'm like, why? Why go. Katy, Texas? He's like, because there's nothing in Katy, Texas. I'm like, okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> Him.
1: He says I I I'm, there's I'm nothing fed there. up. I'm
3: fed up and I'm tired of paying California prices for everything. Here's where we're going.
2: That's funny. I completely understand. Yeah. Absolutely. hundred percent understand.
1: There's been a and noticeable, I'm, I'm, there's been a noticeable migration of Californians into Texas. Texas. Yeah. yeah. We're hearing that from a lot of Not offices
3: in Katy, Texas. though. It's more of the Austin area. I yeah. Think. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The tech area of
3: Texas. Yeah.
2: Right now there is a considerable migration of Californians everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Where yeah. I'm at, tons of Californians are moving. Heck, I'm one of them. I grew up in the central Valley of California and at age 19, I got out of there and uh, I made a foolish decision. I went back for two years, and then I said, what did I do this for? And I came back to Idaho. But uh, uh, I'm one of them, but I've been gone over half my life uh, outside of California now. But, uh, you know, I, I go down there to visit friends and family, and anybody who wants to leave there, I can't blame them one one bit. I really can't. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I'm, I'm, I guess, listening to the book, The Grapes of Wrath, right now about everybody moving from oklahoma kansas that that area to california back yeah. in the 1930s and now it's like it's completely turned on its head and uh it just got it just got overdone somehow i don't know
3: all the gold is gone they're going back home they're
1: going <laughs> back home
3: mm-hmm.
1: the, so. the grapes of wrath is a timeless classic yeah that's uh and you're listening to that like on an audio book
2: I am. Yeah. While I'm out irrigating or whatever I'm doing around the farm, I've got it going and I'm listening to it. Yeah.
1: Tell us, um, tell us real quick about your farm. So beef production, I picked up on that. What else, what else do you produce or, or how do you operate on that farm?
2: Well, we're small. Uh, so we're 33 acres and we're all pasture based. So, uh, we do a cow calf operation, except we hold all of our calves over the next winter and we finish them on grass. And we direct market them. And that gives me my niche. That gives me the ability to tap into that urban market in Boise and get that premium for that beef. And we market it all as grass fed and grass finished. And, and that has nothing to do with a belief system by me. That is simply supply and demand. Customers want that in our area and we're providing them what they want. And I'm happy to do so. It's, it's less work and it's less expense for me. Uh, The pigs will buy, I was trying to breed pigs, but I'm a horrible pig farmer. But I really, really enjoy pigs. When I was getting my, my animal science degree up at Montana State about 20 years ago, uh, I took pork production. And during that semester, I worked in our farrowing barn there on campus and really got to like pigs. So I just always wanted to have pigs and, of course, love pork. So we'll buy a batch of, of weaned pigs uh, here in about two weeks, and we'll direct market those. And we'll have them contracted with customers and raise them for them. And, and then so we only have pigs about half the year. And then goats, we got into by mistake when we first bought our farm. uh, Back then, it was just 25 acres, and it was nothing but weeds and a house. And my my wife and my daughter were getting antsy for livestock, so they talked (laughs) me into buying some electric netting and getting a couple goats. And you can't believe how many people have tried raising goats and don't like it. Pretty soon, once people found out we had land and weeds and goats, they just started giving us their goats and this goat herd started <laughs> developing. And nice. I, this I is know, my dream right I, I here. Never, <laughs> <laughs> I never I intended that in my life, but I, they have grown on me. Uh, we do multi-species grazing with the goats and they really keep the pastures cleaned up nice. And goat prices, you don't even have to market them. You can just take them to the auction. Goat prices in the U.S. are through the roof. It's crazy what's going on with goats. Yeah. Uh, and so- they've really grown on me. They got, they have personalities as well. Uh, Mm -hmm. so that can sometimes be annoying, but, uh, you know, they're a different livestock animal than a cow. That's for sure. Yeah.
1: Very cool. What a, what a nice, just a family operation and you're doing this with your wife, your daughter It's um, you know, you're kind of your own boss. Um, yeah, absolutely. Envious to say the least.
2: Yeah. Oh, thank you.
1: I'll tell you what, we'll slip away. We're going to hear from our sponsors one more time. We'll come back and wrap up here with Matt. Lots of great insight.
4: Uh, We'll be back in just a few minutes. Ever dream of owning a country estate, historic home, or lakefront property? Log on to unitedcountry.com. Would you like to retire to a home built on breathtaking acreage in the mountains? unitedcountry.com. Ever dream of your own private hunting preserve? unitedcountry.com over 30,000 farm recreational and lifestyle properties are just a click away helping people find their american dream for over 90 years we will help you find yours log on now to unitedcountry.com and find your freedom
5: Buying and selling minerals is a breeze when you have the right energy professionals on your team. MineralMarketing.com is a leading resource for America's mineral owners. Whether you're wanting to lease or sell your mineral rights, Mineral Marketing has you covered. MineralMarketing.com, the oil and gas marketplace.
1: And we're back in the studio with Matt Breckwald from CUNA idaho mm-hmm. um so matt before we slip away here this is this has been highly interesting every as we were saying on break everything that you've talked about will resonate well with our listeners um the the non-urban farm ranch lifestyle um, there's a, a a huge consortium of of um people that just uh, they either live in that environment or they want to live in that environment and uh mm-hmm. I think people will be envious of what not only what you've accomplished, but just kind of where your head's at every day when you you get out of bed and and what you're focused on. Um, it's uh, you're kind of living that dream for a lot of people. So as I told you, I'm I'm envious of that. You know, we um, we all have that opportunity, but sometimes it takes uh, it takes a little bit of
3: outside the box. Yeah. Well.
1: It, and it, it's a leap of faith, Mm -hmm. you know, to do something like that. You get, you get very settled into a job and steady income and a check coming in. And, and you think, well, this is, you know, this is my future. Here I go for the next 30 years. And it's, uh, it's difficult to break away from that and to take that leap of faith.
2: Mm -hmm. I was that guy. I was that person. And, uh, I'll tell you what, it's probably one of the most difficult decisions of my entire life to do that. Absolutely.
1: And here you are ten years later. It was the right decision.
2: Oh my goodness. Such the right decision. I so much so that I think a very small percentage of us in this earth or in this country are really intended to work in one job for 30 or 40 years. I think there's a small percentage of us that somehow just hit the jackpot and we love that job. We're excited about that job. And it's hard for us to retire from it. But once I got to the point where I was thinking more about retirement and the day I didn't have to go to work than thinking about going to work and doing a good job. I just decided I have to go do something different. I got to find what's right for me because I've changed as a person. And now it's time for me to change as a, as a career holder, I guess.
1: Yeah. yeah, And it's uh it's a tough decision. Not a lot of people know this about me. I, so my, my first job, I was raised in a farm environment. my, uh, my grand folks raised my brother and I and my granddad was a custom harvester if you you know what that is um, combines no, trucks and, all right Absolutely. so I, I grew up on custom harvest, you know and he helped us buy my brother and I got our first combines when we were young um and we you know i I had um envisioned at one time for the next thirty plus years I'd be a custom harvester but when you haven't spent any time off of the farm and out of a small town, it's a, it's a big world out there. And as I say, the grass is always greener on the other side. I went to work for the Department of Corrections. That was my first job. Uh, I ran a horse training facility for the Oklahoma Department of Corrections. And I did that for about 10 years. But frustration kept building. And I reached that point that you just described earlier. Um, I got frustrated one day and I just walked out and I quit my job and, uh, I got in the auction business and the auction business felt like a better fit for me. Here I am, you know, 25 years later in the auction business. And, um, it's, I, I love what I do. I enjoy, you know, the, the environment I operate in. So I've, I've felt that before what you just described. I went through emotionally and, and, and physically and it, uh, it'll take its, uh, It'll take, its, um, it'll take a turn on you. You know, it, it, it'll dig into you after a while where you just, you have to find something else to do.
2: I agree. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I'll tell you what, I mean, I could take up another hour of your time telling you that part of the story, but uh, it's not an easy thing to do. It's not, a, and when you're going to start a business, it's not an easy thing to figure out what to start, although it's easier than the way I tried to do it. But uh, I think if you're feeling, if you're, if your weekend is condensed down into I feel great at Friday it's 515, Saturday is really good, and by about 1030 in the morning on Sunday, I'm starting to get depressed because I have to go to work tomorrow. You owe it to yourself to start figuring out what it is you should be doing mm-hmm. you're not doing the right thing.
1: I could not agree more. Maybe that's our next topic. Well, if We'd love to have you back on. We'd like to have you on the podcast okay. show again, and we'll talk about that.
2: It'd be my pleasure. Thank you.
1: So, Matt, you've got your own podcast show as we wrap up. Um, We're kind of at the end of this, this time slot here. Tell the listeners how they can find you, how they could listen to your podcast and find out more about what you do.
2: You bet. Thank you. Yeah, the name of the show is Off Farm Income, and we've been, my goodness, we've been, broadcasting since November of 2014. Now we're up to six episodes per week and we're talking about ag, small business and ag. We interview FFA students about entrepreneurship and uh, we do a little bit on rural crime as well just because I've got that 15 years of history of working in and, and teaching criminal justice and working for law enforcement. So we do that. It's called Off Farm Income and it's it's on Spotify, it's on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, all those places the website is offincome.com, and uh, we're on social media as well. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, everywhere they tell me I've got to be, almost, <laughs> uh, you can find it. Nice.
1: Very good. Well, we appreciate your time. We appreciate you being on the podcast show with us. Uh, we'll look forward to having you back on uh, here in the future, and we want to uh, we want to thank you for your time.
2: Hey, it's been my pleasure. And I'm anytime I get invited to be on a show, I'm always flattered. Thank you both so much.
1: You bet. Take care.
3: Well, that was fun. I like talking with Matt.
1: Yeah. What a nice guy.
3: Yeah, definitely. He's he's living the dream that, that most people are looking for.
1: He is. You know, we want Lucinda and I have been looking for, trying to look for a place to, uh, just find a little acreage N- yes. not much and i don't I, I don't have the time really or the means to get in the farming yeah. industry but i i just need a little elbow room mm-hmm. you know three or four or five acres build a shop home just kind of get on the outside of town these land prices are ridiculously Listen, high north of I've kansas told you, city my
3: whole goat dream right like we've had that conversation on this podcast numerous times we have it's not going anywhere like the dream's still there but i i'm yeah, we're currently refinancing our house because we can't do anything.
1: They've got the mini goats, the little ones I that know, are about as big as a dog. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you need to start with I one of those. I want a hobby
3: goat farm, is what I want. I don't want to do anything with them. I just want to watch them run around. That's literally it.
1: Switch so. out one of your dogs for a goat.
3: I'll add a couple more dogs and goats to the to the mix. How about nice.
1: That? Yeah, your husband will love it. I know that. Yeah, he will. <laughs> well, that was uh, that's a great podcast yes. episode mm-hmm. and. Um, I think that
3: wraps it up. I think yeah.
1: that wraps it up. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in. We'll look forward to seeing you next time inside the cell ring.
0: you for joining us for today's show to access all resources and links mentioned in today's show head over to www.thesailring.com now we appreciate your feedback and encourage you to share the show with other industry pros like yourself join us next time as we meet you inside the
3: Sail ring